What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Vlad Tenev is the co-founder and CEO of Robinhood. In this conversation, we discuss financial markets, reducing friction for accessibility, payment for order flow, crypto wallets, the GameStop saga, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Vlad, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is OKCoin. If you haven't started building your crypto portfolio on OKCoin, there's no better time. They're one of the fastest growing global exchanges around, and they have some promotions happening right now to help even more people be part of the future of finance. If you have an account already, you can split $100 in Bitcoin with a friend when you invite them to sign up for OKCoin if they buy $100 of crypto in the first month. The more friends who sign up and buy, the more Bitcoin you get. And I always recommend dollar cost averaging as a way for investors to have more control over the average price when building a portfolio. Now you can automate dollar cost averaging with completely fee-free daily, weekly, or monthly recurring buys on OKCoin until November 1st. That's right. No fees at all on your recurring purchases until the holidays. Get started on the web or on their new super easy-to-use app at okcoin.com slash pomp. Again, okcoin.com slash pomp. Go check out what they're doing. Pay no fees on all recurring buys until November 1st. Next up is Miami Coin. As you may have heard, we just had Miami Mayor Francis Suarez on the show to talk all things Miami, including his excitement for a project that's really caught my attention recently, Miami Coin. Miami Coin is the first token to be released by CityCoins, a community-driven initiative built on Bitcoin. CityCoins aims to give people around the world a new way to support their favorite cities. In short, the city of Miami was given $7 million in counting by private citizens to improve the city with no strings attached. A city government embracing crypto instead of fighting it was a historic event. Do you want to get involved? Follow at MineCityCoins on Twitter to stay up to date with the project and chat. You can also go to citycoins.co, citycoins.co to join the community discord and contribute to the movement. Citycoins.co, go check them out. Miami Coin, over $7 million contributed and continuing to grow. Pretty cool. I really like what they're doing and I'm excited to see what the impact will be on city governments like Miami. All right, let's get into this episode with Vlad. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Vlad here. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Good to meet you. Absolutely. You've made uh, built a multi-billion dollar business by essentially dropping the friction uh, for people to enter into the financial markets. Uh, it's something that my brothers and I spent a bunch of time thinking about and, and working towards is getting more people invested in the market. As you've built that business, uh, obviously there's been an incredible boom uh, in participation in the markets. There's also been all kinds of chaos and, and craziness that's gone along with it. Before we get into the actual business itself, tell us a little bit about you in terms of uh, kind of your journey to starting Robinhood and, and kind of like coming from Bulgaria to the United States and, and what that was like. Yeah, I'd say there were a couple of defining moments. And um, I, I put it in perspective and say that actually growing up, I didn't intend to be an entrepreneur. You know, I, I, um, I grew up with academics and that was kind of the ticket uh, from my parents' perspective, at least to, to being successful. They migrated from Bulgaria in the early 90s, right as the Berlin Wall fell and kind of communism collapsed all throughout Eastern Europe. And they had to start over. And, you know, the, the things that they instilled me with from a young age were just working super hard and prioritizing uh, education. And so I came to Stanford initially to study math and, and physics. And my, um, my goal was to be a professor. So, um, I thought that, you know, by being a professor in, in math or physics, I'd be able to contribute to society by kind of pushing forward the, the overall body of knowledge and, um, sort of stumbled into entrepreneurship. You know, my, um, my co-founder Beju, we were really good friends in college. We both were actually kind of on the academic path and, uh, and we're, we're doing math and physics together. And, uh, I graduated 
college and he graduated from his master's in 2008 when Lehman Brothers went belly up and you had kind of the the start of the the global financial crisis, uh, which was a category defining moment for the financial industry. And so in the wake of that, uh, we started a few financial companies and that's kind of how we we cut our teeth on entrepreneurship. But um, sort of looking backwards, there were a few defining moments uh, that made me exceptionally aware of, you know, how privileged we are in, in this country to actually have access to a functional financial system. In in the mid 90s, Bulgaria actually went through hyperinflation. And so I remember, you know, as a kid visiting my my grandparents back in Bulgaria and, you know, one year uh, a stick of gum would be, you know, two leva. The next year it would be 2000. Right. So you had you had dramatic hyperinflation. Their pensions basically evaporated. The kind of social safety net really wasn't there. And, um, you know, I think we take it for granted in, in the U.S. just how good of a stable financial system we have, how strong capital markets are how easy it is, especially now with with products like Robinhood to become an investor. And, you know, um, there is there is a little bit of a question mark about um, people just take it for granted. They, they assume that these things exist and we have access to them, but they've never experienced kind of in the way that that I have and, and my family has what happens if you don't have these things and, and how bad things can be. And so I, I think that, you know, that that motivated me quite a bit. You know, if if my if my grandparents had access to investments and uh, the ability to actually like store value uh, in in something other than copper cookware or the Bulgarian hyperinflating currency, um, their their lives would have fundamentally been better. And I think they were fortunate that we were in America and and we could help them out. But many others in Bulgaria were were not as fortunate. Talk a little bit about that idea of democratizing access to the markets, right? I think there's, uh, on a net basis, most people say, hey, this is amazing. Uh, then there's uh, what I'll call the critics. And those critics basically are like, hey, if people are uneducated and we give them access, then they're just going to lose all their money. Uh, how do you evaluate, you know, is democratizing the access good or bad? And then how do you think about, uh, is it just open the markets and let everyone participate? Or is there some sort of uh, kind of guide rails or, or education or something that should go along with it? Yeah, sure. And that that's a, a question that uh, that we ask ourselves very frequently. Right. Do we believe in democratization of at all costs? Uh, certainly not. Right. And I think the, the way to articulate it is uh, by talking about our core values. And we actually published these on our website uh, so you can find them. And there we have four values and they're actually linearly prioritized in order. So. Uh, the top value is is safety first. And what that means to us is it's paramount for us to uh, safeguard the security of our customers' accounts and assets to provide them great customer support that's timely. And as a matter of fact, we, we announced 24-hour uh, customer support uh, just today. So now uh, any customer can request live phone support via the app for any issue including cryptocurrency related issues, which I believe makes us the first crypto uh, crypto brokerage to offer 24 seven live phone support. I think that's that's a that's a big deal. And it goes goes in line with the value of safety first. It also means we're investing in education. We're investing in safeguards and guardrails within the product. So, you know, we'll actually tell you if you're investing in in a stock that is experiencing high volatility or if it's uh, a leveraged ETF, for instance, and you know there, there's unique properties that a first-time investor might not understand uh, without that additional information. So safety first is, is our top value. Our second value, participation is power. That's the one you kind of uh, associate with democratization. And democratization is important to us because for a long time, um, just wealthy people have had access to, to to these financial tools, right? And all that does over the long run, if you allow wealthy customers access to to certain tools and and everyone else to not have it, is it just uh, 
increases tension. It increases the gap between the haves and the have nots, increases wealth inequality. And I think as a society, these are are very del- deleterious things. You, you know, you might not notice in the near term, but over a long period of time, um, you know, it, it can be very, very dangerous. So certainly we believe in democratization and we believe that uh, everyone should have access to the highest quality tools, even those tools that have previously been um, reserved just for the wealthy. And, and we believe in that very strongly, but not at the expense of safety. I think safety uh, safety is paramount to our product and our customers. When you start to think about uh, that participation, one of the big knocks against uh, a lot of young users, but it's specifically of Robinhood, is you know they have no clue what they're doing. They're uh, they've got memes, they've got the diamond hands, they've uh, kind of run into the market and they're buying options or they're buying assets, and they have no clue what they're doing. Uh, some people may call it uninformed, some people may call it undisciplined, uh, and some people may just say, "Hey, look, they're taking way too much risk, and they shouldn't be allowed to do that." I guess one question is just like, how do you think about the user base and their sophistication level? And then two is, are there things that the platform should do to uh, kind of limit risk? Or is it something where the education ends up actually driving uh, the user's decisions around how much risk to take or how much risk not to take? We do see, as you're suggesting, that, you know, people tend to... um, sort of paint a brush with broad strokes about Robinhood and and our customers and even more broadly kind of this this next generation of investors. And I mean, I would just say it's it's a little offensive. Uh, It's offensive to us to have them be referred to as, you know, uninformed or um, or clueless investors. Uh, Actually, we see a lot of them uh, are learning, even the ones that sort of are are engaging more actively. are getting getting pretty deep and sort of uh, doing a lot of analyses of these companies, and they they very much uh, are aware of what they're doing. Now that said, if if I think about kind of my my personal predisposition and what type of investing that I like, I'm all about long term investing in companies that you care about and doing that. Um, consistently and steadily over a long period of time. And you can see through some of the products that we've rolled out that Robinhood, the product itself, is uh, is making it easier to do that type of long-term habitual investing. So we rolled out recurring investments in Drip last year as part of our fractional shares rollout. And actually, um, just a couple of weeks ago, we rolled out crypto recurring as well. So uh, it really leverages the zero commission execution of our crypto platform. Now you can dollar cost average and really invest over the long run using crypto uh, commission free, which I think is uh, it is a very, very strong uh, value proposition for crypto investors as well. I mean, it, it can be stressful trying to time the market and seeing uh, the highs and lows and thinking about entry points and I think recurring investments takes a lot of that out of the picture. So um, most of our customers are not, you know, active traders, very small percentage trade options or invest using margin. The the bulk of customers uh, are typical buy and hold investors that are just trying to build diversified portfolios over a long period of time. And, you know, Robinhood exists to make things easier for them. And, And I think, We've made a lot of progress, but still we have a lot more we can do. Let's talk about GameStop. I got a whole bunch of questions here. I took questions from the audience, uh, as everyone would expect. Some of them were intelligent. Some of them were absurd and everything in between. Uh, First, I think it's important to call out that uh, the folks on Reddit, which is obviously not on Robinhood, uh, that identified the short squeeze opportunity ended up being right. And I think that gets lost in all of this, right? As they basically identified this short squeeze opportunity, they went ahead, they exploited it. And uh, for all intents and purposes, they uh, pl- applied quite a bit of pressure to a number of very large uh, Wall Street firms. Some of that was on Robinhood, some of that was done elsewhere, but th- you know, th- that's kind of a, a quick summary of the situation. When you think about that uh, and you, you know, talk to somebody in private, like, how do you describe that situation? Was it something that uh, you all saw pretty early on happening? Did it only really become uh, kind of uh, the forefront once there was the pressure to the large firms? Like, just what is your recollection of like when you first became aware of uh, of that kind of whole situation that was transpiring? Oh, man. Well, uh, there's so much that happened in that time period, right? Um I mean, there there was so many things going on, so it, it's hard uh, hard to say where to start. I mean, you had um, 
basically, you know, I, I was coming back home from, uh, from the East coast back to the West coast, um, in early January at the start of the new year. And typically at the start of the new year, you get, um, an influx of people just generally interested in investing. So, you know, people have new year's resolutions. Um, you have, um, you know, people getting their, their year end bonuses. So there, there's a lot of just, uh, natural kind of seasonal interest in investing at around that time. You also had sort of the, the remnants of the election and then the insurrection in January. Uh, and, you know, the pandemic was, was very much flaring up. So, uh, people were, were inside, um, and, you know, dealing with sort of the, the peak cases and, and, uh, and pandemic activity. So we were very much still locked down. Um, and then I think people had gotten stimulus checks at the end of, of the previous year as well. So the confluence of all of these factors led to just uh, Robinhood climbing through the app store. You know, we, we were, we were first hitting sort of like, um, number one in the financial category, and then eventually ended up actually number one overall, you know, ahead of social media products like TikTok and Instagram and, and Facebook, which is pretty, um, pretty unprecedented for a financial product and a brokerage product. So, um, you know, we, we were trying to keep everything together and, you know, looking around corners best we could to make sure we were stable and, and up for customers. I remember at that time, that was my number one priority because at the beginning of the pandemic, March of 2020, we had, uh, we had some, some downtime, right. As markets were getting super volatile. And that was very disappointing to me kind of as an engineer who built the product, right. You never want your service to be down for, um, for a significant period of time, um, especially, you know, when there's, there's a lot of market volatility. So that was kind of fresh in my mind, just making sure that the investments that, that we made, um, on the technology, uh, were paying off. And, you know, we were really being tested at that point with some growth that we hadn't seen in the past. And then, um, of course, you know, we couldn't have anticipated the, the five Sigma, the sort of one in 3.5 million uh, event, which resulted on the, the week of January 28th, where basically the kind of viral social media activity all funneled through um, a handful of stocks and, and really a handful of brokerages, um, Robinhood kind of being the, the bulk of it, but also lots of other brokerages had to deal with, with similar things, both before we restricted the stocks and, and after. So uh, the way I describe it is, you know, the markets as they currently were, were, were set, were not really built um, for that type of activity. And you can kind of see a, a bunch of assumptions breaking and, and, you know, that that's what led Robinhood to restrict, uh, opening positions. And that's why many other brokerages did that as part of their risk mitigation procedures one way or another uh, before and after uh, our restrictions. So most of the questions fall in three buckets around all this stuff. Uh, and um, there's a whole bunch of professionals, whether they're journalists, they're politicians, they're uh, et cetera, that'll kind of do like the fact finding mission. So I'm going to leave it to them to, to do their jobs. Frankly, I don't think that stuff is as interesting as just kind of getting your perspective here. So the first thing is uh, what are in hindsight, the things that you wish that you'd either done differently or that uh, were like the lessons learned, right? So, you know, hindsight bias is amazing. We get to sit here, uh, kind of safely on the other side of this for for you and for Robin Hood and say, okay, what would you have done differently or what did you learn from uh, that entire experience and, and kind of chaos? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the straightforward one is just um, communicating with with customers and letting them know sort of like with more specificity what what could happen, uh, what could not happen. We did we did communicate to customers. Uh, actually quite prolifically, but, you know, I look back at some of those communications and especially in the days leading up to, um, to January 28th, we would, we would send information about market volatility and how to protect yourself and, you know, uh, information about, you know, long-term investing. And, um, I think hindsight being 2020, we, we had no idea we would, 
we would have to restrict these stocks uh, up until the morning of January 28th. But, you know, being being a little bit upfront and preparing people for possibility, um, you know, I, I think would have gone gone a long way. Just saying, hey, you know, in addition to this information about what volatility means, you know, this is what a brokerage could do in response to, to volatility, including, you know, restricting these stocks um, probably would have tempered a little bit of kind of the conspiracy theories that that emerged of, you know, the brokers colluding with with the hedge funds, um, which, you know, despite all of our efforts, all of my efforts still remain, you know, pe- people still out there uh, think that Robinhood colluded with hedge funds, which, you know, is flabbergasting to me, even even though all of the the mountain of, of actual evidence, uh, I think, pretty, pretty categorically explains that, you know, we had to impose these restrictions because we we got a big collateral call uh, from NSCC, uh, which, you know, is completely has nothing to do with with hedge funds whatsoever. Um, but, you know, uh, stemming that at, at the beginning as early as possible um, probably would have been a little bit more effective. But, you know, you yourself probably know it's it's very, very hard to stop the spread of misinformation um, on social media. And, you know, a simple a simple lie um, is is just more compelling than a complicated truth a lot of the times. And for some reason, it's like collusion is like the the word of the decade, you know, people love talking about collusion one way or another. If it's like, you know, collusion with Russians for for one election, collusion with someone else for another election, collusion with hedge funds, people people like to think that, you know, that that's, you know, it's it's a it's a very, very tempting narrative. And unfortunately, you know, tempting narratives win the day in uh, in this age of social media. So uh, I think there's a lot of things we could have done better, a lot of lessons and uh, a lot of things, you know, we have done better since then, including communicating more transparently, um, really ramping up our, our customer support to make sure we're we're there for customers and generally articulating our values a little bit better, telling people, hey, we are a safety first company. We believe in democratization. Absolutely. We, we want you to do everything that you want to do within the confines of sort of law and regulation. But we want to make sure that especially the young people and the first time investors on Robinhood are having a great experience, have great support and have access to all the information they need to to become long term investors. All right. So the second one is definitely more fun. Uh, Everyone wants to know, you mean that you're to tell us that you're not evil? Robinhood's not evil. You don't want to take advantage of customers. Like, how do you look at uh, the people who think you guys are uh, are bad guys, right? However you want to kind of describe that, and uh, that you're essentially taking advantage of customers. Like, what's the uh, uh, kind of pitch to them, or the the response to uh, uh, those folks? Oh man, well, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really know what to say to that. That's that's a that, that's a new one to me. Um, I mean, look. I think Robinhood over the long run is going to be judged by what we do for customers. Right. And um, I'd like my legacy to be that, you know, we build a great product, we improve it every day and we really execute on our mission to democratize finance for all and bring in all of these people that previously didn't have access to um, bring them into the markets and, and plug them into what's been you know, among the greatest engines of wealth creation that we've seen. And, you know, recently, even with um, we, we try to live and breathe that as much as possible, even um, amidst kind of the, the the public offering that we did a couple of months ago. I think a lot of companies uh, for, for a lot of companies an IPO is kind of a distraction. It has generally nothing to do with their products and with their customers and they just sort of like get through it and get back to to normal operations. We tried to uh, make it the most sort of like uh, customer first IPO in history. So we had a, a, a live customer roadshow as part of our roadshow where customers were able to ask us questions and could hear directly from the management team. And then for the IPO itself, 
We actually built a product called IPO Access that gave customers the ability to participate in these IPOs at the IPO price. Obviously, we offered that for, for our own listing, um, but also for a bunch of other listings before and after Robinhood's IPO. And that that's another um, what we call participation is power product, because traditionally you look at IPOs and they're only available for institutions or high net worth individuals. And with Robinhood, we made it available, not just to our individual investors, but we made it equally available to everyone. So we didn't look at their lifetime value as a customer or how much money they had in their account. Everyone has, um, has an equal shot, regardless of whether you have $10 in your account or, uh, or a million dollars. So through all of these things, we try to live our values and, and execute on our mission. And, um, I think over, over the long run, uh, we believe that, uh, that's really what's going to resonate with customers and just making our customers very, very happy with the service and giving them more value. Um, I think is just going to, going to, going to govern sort of how they view the company, how they view me personally and, and everything of that nature. Awesome. And so I got one more question, then we'll move on to uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Uh, I believe that you raised like a billion dollars overnight during this entire thing uh, at one point. What goes on on those calls? Right. Most people are like, wait, how the hell do you raise a billion dollars in, you know, uh, 10 hours or five hours? Like, do you just call one person? You're like, hey, I need a billion dollars. Or uh, is there some other process like whatever you can share in terms of, uh, of you know, kind of that actual uh, uh, series of events in terms of raising so much capital so quickly and also having it happen uh, in somewhat of a chaotic like, you know, uh, yeah. type situation? Yeah. I mean, it was um, I think it was it was over three billion dollars either. 3.4 billion or 3.6 billion. Um, yeah, that, uh, a, a lot of which came in within 24 hours. And then we, we had some, uh, the following Monday. So all this went down on Thursday. So within just a handful of business days, it's, uh, over $3 billion. And, uh, it was challenging. I mean, <laughs> don't get me wrong. If, if you'd asked me, uh, you know, back in, 2018 or 2019, whether it was possible to pull something like that off. Um, I, I probably would have said no. I mean, I can't imagine pulling it together that, that quickly your typical round takes multiple months to close. Um, so, you know, people did, people did a lot of work across multiple departments, you know, the, the finance team, obviously the legal team, accounting, everyone just, uh, just pushed really hard. And, um, you know, there, there were few investors that I called in, um, in those kind of like early moments of, uh, of, of Thursday morning that basically committed on the spot. You know, I, I've got a, got to call out uh, Mickey Malka from Ribbit Capital, who's been uh, a friend and partner, but, you know, committing on the spot and, and, you know, saying I'm in for $500 million and, uh, and let me make some calls and, and, and get you a little bit more. I think that went a long way because, um, you know, when, when people see that the first few people, the first few investors are committed, um, it makes it a lot easier for them to come in. So, definitely owe a lot of, uh, of gratitude to the investors that we've known for a long time that supported the company through that. Um, yeah, through that really unique time. And I, I think another big part of it was, I think at that time we were, we were number one on the app store. So, uh, it was a problem of, uh, of growth. Right. Um, so, you know, I think, I think we were fortunate that we were in this weird situation where, which was because we were growing so fast, we needed the extra capital to, to continue to grow and to, to handle all the demand on the, on the platform. Yeah, it, absolutely incredible. Uh, Mickey obviously is a legend in his own right, but uh, to commit $500 million on a phone call uh, kind of right out of the gate is, uh, is pretty impressive. Talk to me about uh, adding Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to the platform. Uh, I know that obviously uh, tons of young people are interested in these assets. They've been buying them. Um, what was kind of that process like? And then how has that gone so far in your opinion in terms of, of the success of rolling out those products and, and really kind of scaling it to the customer base? Yeah, well, we've seen a lot of interest in cryptocurrencies on the platform. And I, I would say that was non-obvious when we decided to, to do it back in 2017, early 2018, because we were 
the first or if not among the first um, sort of traditional financial companies to to add trading of, of cryptocurrencies. Um, and I think the, the thinking behind it is, you know, there's our traditional business um, that, you know, tends to evolve more slowly and then cryptocurrencies that are evolving very, very quickly. And, you know, we, we saw a world where, you know, there, there's all sorts of things being built on Ethereum. Bitcoin itself was um, being talked about more and more as kind of a, a store of value and gold replacement. And, you know, th- less useful at that time, at least for, for transactions. So people were thinking about these things as as uh, assets to invest in. And that was very much in Robinhood's wheelhouse. We wanted to be the best place for uh, for people to be investors. In 2017, 2018, it became more clear that um, that's how people viewed these assets. And, and so, of course, we had to be there. We had to uh, build cryptocurrencies in a Robinhood way. And what that means for us is giving people access to really high value and great pricing and, you know, making Robinhood synonymous with getting crypto for for the lowest possible cost. So that's what brought in commission free. And then from the user experience standpoint, um, making it as easy to use as possible. And, you know, this is something that I think we, we we've heard feedback from customers, but at the time it was, it was really a decision to, you know, not have customers worry about things like public private key cryptography and encryption and kind of take that step, uh, that hurdle that sort of put it in the realm of you had to be a computer scientist or an engineer to understand how to work with these things and and made it accessible to everyday people that wanted exposure to the asset. So now we're we're adding uh, wallets. We've rolled out the wallets wait list, actually just hit a million uh, a million people on it yesterday. And you know, we're, we're looking to provide the same sort of user experience and ease of use that we did for kind of the, the crypto trading product to wallets themselves. But um, I think that that was the advantage in the early days. It was just um, Robinhood crypto was uh, was meant to be the lowest cost and easiest to use way to, to get exposure to crypto. And I, I think that's manifested itself in the growth of the business. I mean, you see uh, through uh, some of our quarterly metrics and results that crypto has really become a bigger and bigger part of our business, especially through 2021. And we're continuing to invest more and more into it and making the product and the service better and and more reliable and and uh, more useful for customers. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, there's some platforms that are Bitcoin only. There's some that offer everything. Uh, I think you all offer yeah. a, a whole bunch of different assets, uh, but there's really been a ton of interest in Dogecoin specifically. Uh, how do you kind of think through that? Is that just a um, kind of an extension of the GameStop, AMC and, and that type of uh, uh, consumer behavior? Or is there something else that, that you think is kind of driving uh, what I would consider more of like an outlier amount of interest in assets that maybe aren't as popular on other platforms? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think um, there's probably some overlap, but I think they're they're very distinct communities that have formed around some of these things. So there there's definitely a Dogecoin community with its own Dogecoin memes, and uh, they're very very passionate and they're really funny. Um, so um, and, and I think. There, there's people around a variety of coins. There's communities forming on social media, obviously around um, around some of these meme stocks. Um, so probably a little bit of overlap, but I, I do think to to some degree these are distinct communities that that care about very different things. And you know, some of these um, some of these have have written manifestos and kind of code of ethics. So. Um, it's really, uh, really interesting to watch it evolve. I think it's kind of an emergent phenomenon that um, that'll be studied. And I, I don't know if, if anyone is adequately explaining, you know, the factors that have that have caught that have caught rise to to all of these communities. I, I always describe uh, meme stocks are not new. 
you know, in some weird way, Berkshire Hathaway is a meme stock. Like uh, people feel like they're disciples of Warren Buffett. They go on like almost this trek to Omaha uh, every single year to listen to him. There's a way of life. There's uh, memes. They don't call them memes, but there's definitely other things. Uh, so, so I do think that, you know, it's new, but it's also not new, which is, uh, which is pretty interesting. Uh, you've rolled out the crypto wallet. Uh, as you mentioned, there's over a million people who have already signed up on the wait list for that. Uh, I think people are generally very excited about the products that you guys are rolling out. One of the risks to the business, which, uh, frankly, I'm not as up to speed on, but, but would love your thoughts is, uh, there seems to be some regulatory questions around payment for order flow. So maybe just describe like what exactly that is and then how you think about, uh, that regulatory risk. And if for some reason, uh, whether it's, you know, small or large, uh, percentage chance that was actually, uh, rendered not available to Robinhood, what would the impact on the business be? Yeah. Um, so payment for order flow is, um, it, it, it's a thing on the security side of the business. So, um, stocks and options trading, uh, less so crypto because crypto, uh, operates under a, a different regulatory regime right now. Um, but basically the way to think about it is it's, uh, a revenue stream you can think of it as a revenue share between market makers and brokers. So market makers are for-profit uh, entities that make markets on, you know, either stocks or options or, or cryptocurrencies. And um, they make markets for customers of brokers like Robinhood. And so um, payment for order flow is basically Robinhood gets um, gets a portion of those profits as revenue. Um, you can kind of think of it analogously to affiliate or lead gen. Um, you know, we're we're responsible to some degree for for the profits because uh, the customer orders are coming through us, and so we get uh, a chunk of them through um, through this revenue share. So, um, Rick, I, I can say so much about this, but uh, I'll just make a couple of points. One is that this isn't new. This isn't something that Robinhood has created. Uh, prior to Robinhood coming around, uh, the brokers would generate revenue from payment for order flow, and they would generate revenue from commissions on top. And people didn't pay much attention to the payment for order flow because the commissions revenue was so much bigger, right? So it was like, you know, tiny little payment for order flow. And then commissions revenue being, you know, 10 times bigger or something of that nature. So what Robinhood did was um, basically obliterate that commission revenue stream industry-wide. And back in, you know, the fall of, of 2019, when all of the um, kind of legacy incumbent brokers replicated our business model and got rid of commissions, um, I don't know if you remember this. It was it was pretty awe inspiring in a way because all of these stocks just cratered by like thirty five percent or thirty percent. You saw E Trade going down thirty five percent. You know TD Ameritrade, Schwab, uh, Schwab went down quite a bit because you know one after the other uh, they lowered commissions to zero, and so you know that that doesn't happen when they're suddenly making more money. You know a huge chunk of of their revenue disappeared. And that went into the pockets of customers in the form of, of lower fees. So basically having payment for order flow um, has made commission-free trading possible, not just for Robinhood, but for the industry. And you know it would be really unfortunate to, to see that go away because certainly you'd see some brokers reintroducing commissions one way or another. Um, and I think in, in terms of retail investors, um, their arguments, uh, I think people just don't really understand it in detail, which I think points to an opportunity for us to continue explaining it a little bit more. They don't understand it in detail. It sounds confusing and complicated and, you know, um, it's become political to some degree. But um, you've heard, you know, some of the market makers being interviewed about this as well. And they're a little bit perplexed, right? Because they're like, payment for order flow is a cost to me, right? So, you know, the people arguing for this are in a sense arguing for market makers or kind of hedge funds as the internet calls them making even more money. Um, so, you know, I, I don't understand that, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, uh, to try to, try to, uh, make 
awesome products for customers. Uh, we, we like the fact that people aren't paying commissions and payment for order flow makes that possible. Um, and I think if people really start to understand the nuances of it, they'll understand that it's actually a great thing for, uh, for customers. And it's made, um, it's made the democratization of the markets and this greater participation that we've seen in the past few years possible. Cause you, you couldn't, you just couldn't invest, uh, if you were paying seven to $10 commissions, I think investing with a hundred dollars, even a thousand dollars becomes much more expensive under that, that old structure. You ever sit around and you're like, yeah, we, we destroyed that part of the industry for, uh, for kind of the incumbents. Like, is there a level of like uh, satisfaction with you and the team of just like you came in, you did something that most people weren't willing to do, and it really did send shockwaves, right? You know, both obviously from the stock prices of those uh, organizations, but it changed the business models. We've seen many people go to zero commission. Like, is there a level of just like, you know, people can say whatever they want about us, but we did get that done? A little bit, you know, and it was good. Um, uh, on the one hand, you know, it was kind of stressful going through that time period because you're like, oh man, they all just matched our pricing. Um, you know, we, we used to be kind of the, the only one that was offering commission-free trading. Um, but yeah, I think um, recognizing that it's, it's better for customers and it's not just our customers, but tens of millions of customers that have never used Robinhood that are benefiting from this, I, I think is a very powerful thing. I mean, it would be almost like you know, if you're making electric vehicles and, and, you know, your Tesla or something, and then all of the legacy sort of uh, internal combustion manufacturers just went to electric at the same time. Um, obviously, you know, different situation, but I, I've just never seen anything like that in, in any industry. So um, it was kind of remarkable how, how quickly it happened. And, and by the way, I think it's going to happen in cryptocurrency as well. I think you look at the cryptocurrency um the cryptocurrency business, people are paying exorbitant fees right now, um, whether it be kind of in the, the spreads in the different swaps products, uh, the DeFi products, uh, or commissions in the centralized exchanges. You know, some of those commissions are 3%, 4%, even more. And, um, you know, th those are going to go down to zero as well. Um, I think, uh, I think that's an inevitability and, um, yeah, well, uh, Robinhood hopefully will have a big part to play there. Uh, I've got a couple more questions, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, there's a ton of people online uh, who have questions around uh, assets that Robinhood employees hold, uh, when they can buy and sell, how they buy and sell. Uh, there's questions around the GameStop uh, situation, who was buying, who was selling. There's all these emails that came out. Uh, I'm frankly not you know, in the uh, weeds enough to understand uh, all of the nuanced questions, but maybe just walk us through uh, how you all think about employees, what assets they hold, when they're allowed to buy and sell. And then are there times where uh, you, you kind of think about it from, a, are we doing things that are aligned with or against uh, what people on the platform are doing themselves? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I guess what I'll say is, um, you know, it, it reminds me of um, I, I, I forget who is saying this, but um, there's this company Chewy that a lot of people uh, really love. Right. They they make uh, pet food. And um, one of the reasons that they were able to be so successful is that um, their customer service was just awesome. Right. And the way they had great customer service was, you know, they got together you know, a group of like the biggest, most enthusiastic dog lovers ever and had them, you know, serve customers. So, you know, when you, when you called customer support, you know, that, you know, you're getting someone that's super, super passionate about what they're doing. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just customer support. It was across the board, all of the, all of the employees of the company. So, um, I think that, Robinhood is is similar in some ways, right? People, there's people that work at Robinhood that are really passionate about our customers. They're passionate about the markets. They're passionate about investing and trading. Um, and you know, they come to Robinhood because that's a place where you know they can exercise that passion um, and and combine it with their work. So, um, of course, you know, we've got people at Robinhood that are that are interested in trading. Um, I probably shouldn't talk about 
any legal matters. But I, I will tell you that, um, of course, we have policies and procedures in place to monitor and to govern employee trading. There's also policies and procedures kind of industry wide. And um, and we do our best to comply with them and to be sort of reasonable, good, uh, good stewards there. One of the things that I've never heard anyone ask you, I don't think, uh, is how you think of your own personal portfolio. So I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a very big portion of your net worth is tied up in Robinhood equity itself, uh, yeah. like most you know technology founders. But outside of the Robinhood equity, do you invest any of your assets? Are you too busy to do it? Like, like how do you, th- do you give to somebody else to do? Like, just walk me through kind of how you think about investing. Um, cause it's, it, it's interesting, right? Like you, you've built a, yeah. uh, one of the most popular platforms in the world for investing, but I don't know if anyone really thinks about how you think about investing. So this is something that's really changed for me, uh, as Robinhood has gotten bigger. And, uh, especially since we've, since we've gone public and it, it's one of the things that's hard for me because, um, I really love, you know, I love investing. I love trading. It's, it's probably been, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about and have been from, from an early age when I opened up my first, uh, brokerage account in the, the dot-com kind of boom and bust in the late nineties. Um, so I love it. Um, and you know, Unfortunately, it's just like impossible for me to do it at this point. So now I, I I don't do any of my own investing and and trading anymore, and and I haven't for for some time. When you think about crypto, uh, do you have exposure to Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and anything in there? Uh, I have had a little bit. Yeah, I mean, not you know uh, a significant chunk, but you know, I've been uh, I got curious uh, about crypto back in. 2011, uh, I read the white paper and uh, a bunch of folks from my math program who were interested in cryptography were like, hey, you're in finance, you should learn about this. So I went through a period where um, where I tried mining it. But of course, mining it is, is very hard. Um, it's very unlikely that you know, you'll get the the 50 uh, Bitcoin block reward back in those days. So uh, nothing really came out of the mining. And I remember... Um, I was I was signing up for a Mount Gox exchange account at that time, and I hadn't put anything in it, but I was thinking about it. This was back in 2011 when it was trading at, you know, a few dollars a coin, and then Mount Gox got hacked, um, and I was like, oh man, dodged a bullet on that one. Good thing I didn't put anything in it, and then I just, uh, you know. Um, I, I didn't end up participating. I thought, frankly, that it was dead at that point, that the Mount Gox hack just uh, just killed uh, any enthusiasm that there was for the asset. But I think uh, at the end of the day, that ended up being a miscalculation. And I think every few years, people will say, for one reason or another, crypto is dead. Or at that time, since Bitcoin was the only one, Bitcoin is dead. And um, the resilience of, of the asset and the space has been has been pretty remarkable. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, and especially when you look at it, it's not just Bitcoin and crypto. I actually think there's something interesting about, uh, you know, the GameStop AMC, kind of what's called the meme stocks today, et cetera. It seems like there is a very strong belief, kind of the diamond hands type mentality uh, with some of these younger investors, and it changes the market dynamic. Right. It, you know, in uh, in the stock market, for example, if all of a sudden a company came out and sold a bunch of shares to raise capital or whatever, there would be pretty material movements in the stock price. But in some crazy way, uh, sometimes the market doesn't care uh, just because people have like a, uh, a a much different view of the asset. They're buying it for a different reason. They have a longer time horizon, et cetera. Uh, so, so it's fascinating to see just the resilience across markets, but obviously Bitcoin probably being the, uh, the best example of it. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think. Um you know, the, the liquidity uh, in some of these assets, the amount of sort of uh, global participation, um, I think it, it's it's pretty unique. It's, you know, not quite what you see in Forex, definitely dissimilar to uh, to equities. Um, so I, I think it's it's a new beast. 
For sure. Uh, I want to wrap up with uh, kind of just giving you the floor. So there's people who are watching this who absolutely love Robinhood, uh, think you're a genius. They're so happy because they got into financial markets and, and Robinhood helped them do that. There's people who are watching this who, you know, literally are like, man, that guy shut off stocks and uh, and screwed me, right? Whatever that ends up meaning. And then there's everyone in between. Uh, what's kind of your pitch to people around Robinhood, uh, why they should use the product and then kind of what the philosophy is uh, as to uh, how you guys interact with customers and uh, and kind of what the company is that you want to build as you continue moving forward. Yeah, my philosophy is just to to you know, we have our mission which is democratize finance for all and we have our core values um, safety first, participation is power, radical customer focus, first principles thinking. And they they govern everything that we do. So, um you know, r- rather than me just talking and, and telling you about Robinhood, um, I think, you know, the best thing to do is to watch us deliver and see what we build and, and deliver to customers. And over time, um, what we deliver and what we build should be consistent with with what we say. And, you know, with things like 24, 24 hour customer support, crypto wallets, um, commission free crypto recurring you know, IPO access, all, all these recent product developments, um, I think are, are built for customers to make their experience better, to make it easier for them to become long-term investors. And that's what we're going to continue to do. And um, you'll see the product continue to get better uh, week after week. And my goal is, is to make it, um, to make it unreasonable to use anything else. So you, you should feel like you're at a disadvantage across all dimensions by by not using Robinhood. Got it. Uh, where can we send people to find you on the internet if uh, if they want to follow you or, or find more about Robinhood? You could you could go to whenwallets.com, W-E-N wallets. Um, no, or uh, you can find me on Twitter or find Robinhood on Robinhood.com. We're, we're generally pretty easy to find. There you go. Yeah. Got it. Uh, I appreciate that you guys understand the uh, the culture of uh, of the customer base because uh, I tweeted yesterday and I said you were coming on and I was blown away by how many people had questions and you know when wallet was like the number one question that everyone wanted to hear. So uh, that's see- funny because that's the one I feel like we've answered pretty pretty well. So um, we're we're letting the first customers on in the alpha this month and hope to roll it out to everyone in Q1 of next year. The uh, I had one point two thousand, so twelve hundred questions, and uh, literally everyone wants to know when wallet, when whatever their favorite shit coin was, and uh, and then basically about GameStop. So uh, you, you did a great job. I liked a few of those questions. Yeah, I, I liked a few of them. Uh, I don't know if you noticed. Uh, I saw yeah, there, were, there were some random ones. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I think people really generally uh, appreciate hearing your perspective on a, a number of different things and uh, best of luck as you continue to build the business and what to do to get in the future. Thank you. Would love that.